Uh, like Ryan said, my name is Bert. Uh, I'm the lead pastor at Anthem Ventura. Uh, if you don't know what that is or who I am, we are a family of churches, and we are all about planting churches, and my wife and I, Sherry, and at the time, our one baby, that has since changed, but our one baby, uh, we went and started a church in downtown Ventura, and so we say hello, we love you. We actually pray for you guys a ton, are thankful for our relationship and our partnership. Uh, and so I bring all that up because the reason I am here and Matt is not here is because we are helping launch another church this morning. And so you guys have heard us talk about... Did I hear a, a clap somewhere? Yeah, bring it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys, some of you guys remember when a guy named Andy Rogers was here doing a leadership residency with us for about a year. We sent him out to San Diego to plant a church, and they have since planted three other churches from that church. And so we have like another grandkid that we get to celebrate today. And so uh, we are uh, helping plant. And so Matt uh, Larson, Kevin Bailey right now are at the launch service for Restored in Temecula. And they're celebrating with Tom and Ebony, dear friends uh, of mine, actually actually, that are going out and going back to some of their hometown area to start a new church in the city of Temecula. And so what I'd actually like to do is take a few moments before we dig into the scripture and pray for this new church on their launch day. Jesus, we are um, amazed at how your gospel continues to move and grow Despite so much spiritual opposition, despite so much cultural opposition, your gospel continues on. And we are thankful for this new work of you in the city of Temecula. And we pray that they would be a, a lighthouse, a beacon of hope to people who are hopeless. Uh, we ask that the, the gospel would be proclaimed boldly today. And even this morning, we would see lives changed, people coming to know you, and maybe even people baptized. It would be an incredible morning. But we ask that you would gird this new church, that you would uh, be digging deep with their leadership, their launch team, grounding them in who you are and all you've done and preparing them to take this message of the good news to Temecula. So we're thankful for all you're doing there. We pray for Tom and Ebony and the rest of their leadership team that you would uh, continue to ingrain in them that this is not their identity, but their identity is in you. And this is a beautiful expression of what you're doing in their life, in their family's life, and their friends and the other leaders they've gathered together for this new church. So we ask your blessing and favor on this new church plant as they forge new gospel ground in the city of Temecula. We say this together as the church of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Uh, be sure to ask Matt about how it went when he comes back next week. Uh, church plant launches are one of his most favorite things he gets to do. Uh, but one of my favorite things that I get to do is teach the Bible. And so we are starting a new series today that is going to take us through uh, most of summertime. We are going to be in the book of Colossians together. So if you have a Bible or have a Bible app on your phone, open to Colossians chapter 1. Put your thumb there. That is where we're going to be spending all of our time time this morning. And kind of like Ryan alluded to, we've come out of a few formative teaching times here as a family of churches, one of which was the last four weeks, understanding what it means to follow Jesus. And we called that series Practicing the Way of Jesus. And those four weeks were all oriented around understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how a disciple of Jesus orients or, or positions or arranges their lives around these three goals of being 
being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the things he did. And really that sprouted out of almost two years in the Gospel of Matthew together, understanding the lifetimes, teaching, and ministry of Jesus, and marinating and saturating ourselves in, in the teachings and the work of Jesus. And we, we left that series in Matthew feeling like there's got to be more to dig up here for us. And that kind of positioned us for those four weeks and practicing the way. And, and as we were spending time both in practicing the way of Jesus and Matthew, we have to, we kind of felt like there's, there's more stuff to be dug up. Like, I don't know if you guys felt that way last week as Matt was wrapping up. You're like, I, I'm just now getting the hang of this. Like, I'm, let's keep going. I want to dig in. And, and one of the things we've loved about Colossians and the reason we are sinking our, our spring and summer here into Colossians is this is a great outflow of that. There is so much about the church at Colossae that resonates with us in Southern California. Uh, There's so much space for practically putting the teaching and ministry of Jesus to work in our life that we see in the book of Colossians. And so that is why we're here. That's what we're going to be spending our time in this summer. And the letter of Colossians deals with following Jesus amidst crazy cultural temptation religious tradition, and, and in the context of one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. Does that sound eerily familiar to where we find ourselves today? I hope it does, because as we've been spending time in the book of Colossians, we just keep turning page after page. We're like, oh man, this is, this is us. <laughs> this is like, this is my wrestle. This is our wrestle. This is our wrestle as a church. These same temptations that the Colossians are facing feel so at home for me. And so let's look and see what's happening in the church at Colossae. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, to understand what's happening here, we're going to spend a little bit of time understanding the context in which this church lived. And we're going to understand a little bit about the guy who wrote the letter. And so just to give you a bit of a roadmap for today, the first kind of half is just going to be setting the stage for the next few months together. Because I really do believe we can't fully grasp all Jesus has for us out of this letter without digging into a bit of, of why Paul was writing this letter and what specific issues he was trying to tackle here. And so most of today is just setting the stage for where we're headed for the next few months. And first of all, we have to start with who wrote this letter. And this is a letter uh, from Paul, great apostolic leader and church planter in the New Testament, had a radical conversion with this vision of Jesus. And the beginning of his life is tremendous. You go read the book of Acts for that. But as he is writing this letter, he's writing it from, from jail or home arrest in Rome. And so he's made his way to Rome, and he's sitting stuck in a home or some prison version of a home and writing and firing off these letters to churches that he he has helped plant or to leaders with whom he has a relationship. And what is interesting about his letter to the Colossians is he doesn't know these people. He didn't help plant this church. He's writing a letter to people he doesn't know and to a church he did not start. And so there had to be some intermediary here that came in. And that intermediary is this guy named Epaphras, 
which this, this guy who helped start the church at Colossae comes to Paul with these reports of faithful Christians living amongst intense cultural and religious pressure. And so he comes to them sharing all these stories of how they're travailing and how they're faithful to Christ and how they're loving one another, but also that they are being attacked from every angle. They're being attacked from the culture in which they live in. They're being attacked from the Jewish Christian community and facing pressure there. And they're, being, uh, uh, they're having to live in context of one of the most powerful empires that has ever reigned over the earth. And so he comes with these specific problems to Paul. And the reason Epaphras comes to Paul is because roughly around the time Paul was writing this letter, it was about 62 AD-ish, he was writing the letter of Ephesians and Philemon as well. Around this time, this guy Epaphras comes and visits him because about 10 years prior, most scholars believe this same man heard Paul preach in his third missionary journey when he was in Ephesus. He was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and we have a text in Acts that says all sorts of people from Asia came to Ephesus to hear this good news that Paul was preaching. And so most scholars believe this guy, Epaphras, was there heard the gospel from Paul, is fully changed by it, goes back to his hometown of Colossae and starts the Colossian church. And we find him as this deliverer of good news of faithful Christians and bad news of cultural temptations coming to Paul asking for help. And Paul's response is to then write a letter of encouragement, exhortation, and teaching to this church, to the people he hasn't met, but knowing some of their, their main leaders, hearing the problems that are at bay there, and writing in to help instruct them, shape them, guide them, and teach them. So that's Paul. It's Epaphras, the church at Colossae. But that's not the only context we have to reckon with today. We have to reckon with the empire in which this new church was started in. And this is the Roman Empire. Now, there are a couple of things we have to know about the Roman Empire to fully understand the problems that the Colossians were facing. The first is we have to, it, the Roman Empire was massive. At its peak, it was something like 4,200 miles end to end. Now, for frame of reference, the U.S. from coast to coast is about 3,300 miles so it's huge. Think England to India. This is a massive empire. So not only was it huge, but it had been around for a long time, something like 1,500 years. They dominated the known world for a long, long time. America has only been around around 242 years. Think of the depth of history and tradition that is set in in our country. And then multiply that tenfold for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire changed the world in many huge ways. But it did so in three particular ways that are worth highlighting today. And one of the main ways it changed the known world and really transformed the world even to today is through their infrastructure. Through the Roman roads. I don't know if that's where you knew I was going to start with road work. But that was really one of the pioneering things that set the Roman Empire apart. The first Roman road was built in 312 BC, and by the second century, there were over 5,000 miles of roads, all leading to Rome. 
Just think of the visual of that. If you zoom out of the Roman Empire and look at Asia Minor, you look at the Middle East, you look at like the Mediterranean, Northern Africa, and you just can visualize 5,000 miles of roads all leading to one central place. Now, some of them are still in use today. Like the engineering marvels and feats that they used to build these roads Meaning that they built roads 2,000 years ago better than we can build them today because those roads and some of those bridges are still in use today. Now the reason that's important, because that in and of itself is just a little fun fact, the reason that is important is it not only eased commerce, it eased travel, it made it easier for people to move around, but it shrank the world. It shrank the world to where someone could know someone thousands of miles away. An unheard of thing in this time. It did for them then what the internet has done for us. It has made the world smaller. And that does a whole lot of things to culture when the world suddenly gets smaller. It introduced something called syncretism, which would have meant if the world is shrinking, you're meeting people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different religions, different cultures, and suddenly that's all starting over hundreds of years to blend together into this culture, we're saying, oh, you, you eat that food, I eat this food, I'll incorporate that. And that's how we get Asian fusion food or whatever. And we say, oh, you like to do that kind of sport, I do this sport. Let's mash them together and create this weird new sport together. Or you worship this God, oh, I worship this God. Let's add him to the list and like, let's expand the gods we worship to. And this was the culture in which the Colossian church lived in. And this was brought about because the world shrank. People could get from point A to point B much easier. So that is one way the Roman Empire transformed the world as we know it. The second way is Roman peace, Pax Romana. So if you were in the Roman army, or you were an enemy of Rome, or if you were even kind of on the outskirts, like this was an incredibly violent time. But if you were inside the empire and a citizen of Rome, this was an incredibly and unbelievably peaceful time in human history. There were skirmishes here and there. There were revolts here and there for sure. But one of the things the Roman Empire prided themselves on is peacefulness within its kingdom. This would have been huge. And the third is Roman law. Something we have even taken today to help shape some of our laws in the United States. It created a lot of systems to keep that peace. And they created a lot of systems for people to be heard. Because if people were heard and they're cared for and they think that justice was relatively on their side, they wouldn't revolt and rebel against their government. If people feel like they're not heard and justice isn't being served, that's when the revolts and the rebellions happen. And so they created all these laws and these systems to keep the peace and to make people feel like justice was being administered. This was so potent that Paul himself used his Roman citizenship and the laws that protected him to get out of many sticky situations, one of which we find in the book of Acts. I want to, I want to show you this story in the book of Acts in chapter 22. If you want to turn there, you can. It's really interesting, one of those areas where Paul is, is speaking to people, preaching the gospel, disrupting everything as they know it. And here in Acts 22, verse 22, up to this word, they listen to him. So he's, he's speaking, he's teaching about Jesus, preaching the gospel, disrupting everything in culture. Up to this word, they listen to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. Such a great, you know, response. For he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, a.k.a. torture. They were going to torture him to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? This changes everything in the story. Look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. There was such power and authority that came from being a Roman citizen under Roman law during Roman peace, that he was disrupting an entire town, a riot was breaking out, and he was about to be tortured, and all he had to do was say, I'm a Roman citizen. And it like spooked fear into everybody who was there. They immediately withdrew and let him go. This is the culture in which the Colossian church was started. The world is shrinking, cultures colliding, unprecedented peace and rule of law, protections under those Roman law for Roman citizens. And when you have all of those things stirring up together, you get a couple of problems. You get a couple of specific cultural, religious, even governmental temptations that could shape this new early birth church in Colossae. And a couple of those particular problems that Paul tackles head-on in this letter are mystical polytheism and syncretism, which is a whole lot of fancy words to say you worshipped a whole lot of gods. And so when they would have encountered Jesus, they just add him to the list. That was one of the cultural temptations they were facing. Second was Jewish legalism and asceticism. They faced great pressure from the Jewish Christian community to complete their salvation by following all these extra laws. And third is seeing the Roman Empire as their source of hope. With this unprecedented peace and authority under the Roman law, it's hard not to see your hope is in such a powerful government that can save you and protect you and make your way of life easier and better. Do any of those sound familiar to the life we live today? These cultural issues Paul tackles head on in the letter, but the reason I bring them up right now is he actually starts to subtly unravel them in his beginning prayer. Before he even says amen, he's starting to subversively dismantle all of these worldviews that are at play in Colossae, and he does it by thanking God for the work that has already happened. So let's go to Colossians 1 back there, and we're going to go to verse 3 the beginning of Paul's introductory prayer of thanksgiving. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So stop right there. Paul starts 
was saying, hi, I'm Paul, grace and peace to you, the church that's in Colossae, we always thank God for you. He's not berating them. He's not like calling them out for giving into these cultural temptations, which leads us to believe there is something beautiful that is happening in this church. Paul writes to some other churches, like the Galatians, the, the Corinthians, where he, he gets his wagging finger out and starts to scold them for how they've missed the gospel. And Paul here instead starts by encouraging them and building them up. God is at work in this church. There is immense cultural pressure, Jewish traditional pressure. There's a, an entire crazy Roman Empire that is trying to shape and form their entire lives. And Paul says, we always thank God for you. Something good is happening here. And I want to bring that up and highlight it. And he starts to, in that way, subversively dismantle the worldviews at play here. And he does that in a couple of different ways. If you guys have spent time reading the Bible, particularly some of Paul's other letters, you'll notice a sort of apostolic shorthand that comes up when we see faith, hope, and love come up in a sentence together. This is a repeated phrase that happens a lot through the Bible, and this is a sort of shorthand to indicate genuine Christian living. So this is like code word for like, you guys are actually getting it and you're actually living this out. And so he uses a bit of this shorthand, but he mixes up the order that we're normally familiar with. We normally see faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And we see that often in many letters. And this apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. None of these qualities like, can be manufactured on your own. These are from God. This shorthand for genuine Christian living actually has a bit of correlation for the issues that the Colossians are facing. A little bit of loose ties for what they're about to face. It's a little bit of foreshadowing and preview for how we combat this intense cultural pressure. And the first one that Paul calls out is their faithfulness to Christ. You've been faithful. We always thank God for your faithfulness to Christ Jesus. And this is one of those subtle, subversive ways of encouraging them not to give in to this polytheistic worldview, this syncretist worldview when it comes to religion, and affirming it is not the way of Jesus to integrate Jesus into all of the things you already worship. But Jesus is different. One of the primary themes of this letter is the supremacy of Jesus over everything and everyone else. And he affirms that in this early prayer. We always thank God for your faithfulness to Christ Jesus. And we can put in parentheses, and not the other gods that your friends and family worship. He commends them and encourages them for, this, for their faith. And faithfulness to Jesus is the direct antithesis to the world they're living in. All of these Christians, all of these new Christians would have grown up worshiping all these Greek and Roman gods and might have simply added Jesus to that list. So it didn't take much to believe Jesus and simply add him into the other gods you obeyed and worshiped like Artemis or Hermes or Apollo or Aphrodite or whatever. And now Jesus is one of those. And often when we think believe... We're thinking doctrinal creeds. We're thinking intellectual comprehension. And you can believe in Jesus and still continue worshiping all these other things in your life. And often it's because we, 
misunderstand what the Bible writers write when they write about belief. There's a missionary in the 1800s, John G. Patton, and he was ministering and and translating the Bible in the Outer Hebrides, and he was translating the Bible for them, and he came across this word believe and couldn't quite find the right word to translate. And he worked and toiled and prayed and talked to the, the tribes there until he finally came up with a word that fully encapsulate what the Bible means when it says believe. And this word, translated back into English, means to lean your full weight upon. This image of leaning your full weight upon something also subtly implies you can't also lean your weight on something else. If you're, uh, think of the image of like your car stalls out in the middle of the road and you have to like push it to the side, you pop that thing in a neutral and you have to lean your full weight on that car to get it to go anywhere. You don't have time, you don't have energy to also like carry a bag, right? You can't do this one-handed, you got to lean your full weight upon the car to move it. And that's the same image we get here with that one word. And that is behind this word faith and faithfulness that Paul uses. That you have not subver- uh, adhered to worshiping other gods. You have not like just succumbed to the cultural pressure to add Jesus into everything else. But you have lent your full weight upon Jesus and are letting him shape you. Now, we may think in our life today, well, we don't worship Greek and Roman gods, so this might not apply to us, right? I would posit that you and I battle the temptation to worship other things in our life today. Whether it be the stuff that we have, this materialistic, consumeristic life, whether it be your family or your kids and the legacy of your kids, There are things vying, not only for your attention, but for your worship. Right now. And it may not be a Greek or Roman God. And maybe that promotion at work or your career is the thing you worship. And maybe your kids. You shape your entire life around driving your kids from one soccer practice to another until you go to bed at night. Maybe it's their grades, putting so much pressure on them to get good grades because it reflects well on you. Maybe it's having that nicer car so other people will look at you and think, wow, he's really doing well. The problems facing the Colossians are not so far-fetched from the problems facing you and I today. And Paul thanks them and commends them and encourages them in their faithfulness to Christ Jesus. Despite their temptation to add Jesus into the list of gods they already had, They've pressed on with Jesus being the center. They used to live in fear of all of these gods. And Jesus has triumphed over them, putting them to open shame. And has freed them from any obligation to them. And know that same encouragement is for you today. That whatever it is you were beholden to, Jesus has triumphed over that thing and put it to open shame Your fancy new car is eventually going to get miles on it, and it's not going to be fancy or new anymore. Like, your kids will disappoint you. Sorry if I'm the first one breaking that news to you. It will happen. Jesus has triumphed over everything and everyone else trying to be a God in your life and has put them to open shame. He is at the center. 
And just like what Paul is doing here in this prayer, it's not only an encouragement, but a reminder to keep going. We always thank God for you, for your faithfulness to Jesus. Thank you. Keep going. Don't stop. Continue on. And the second thing he thanks God for is their love for the saints, their love for one another. Because the second problem they were facing was great pressure from the Jewish Christian community to complete this commitment to Jesus by then following all these extra rules and traditions, not only found in the Torah, but the rabbinical system as well. And they created all these extra rules for people who hear the gospel and want life in Jesus. And the Colossian church has shown love for all the saints, in part by proclaiming the way of Jesus and that his work lacks nothing. It's not Jesus plus all this extra stuff and then you get to heaven. It's just Jesus. It's not Jesus plus good living equals favor for God. It's just Jesus. It's not Jesus plus church attendance means God will love you. It's just Jesus. He became our sin so we could become his righteousness. It's just Jesus. And in part, the Colossian church were showing love to one another by proclaiming that message. That it's not Jesus plus all these other things and God will love you. It is just Jesus. His work lacks nothing for you. A new thing had come into the world. A community held together by love. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female, Jew, Greek, learned, ignorant, join hands and sat down at one table under the name of Jesus. This was something new. And this was something disruptive and subversive in their time and place. There had never been anything like it before. This community held together not by geographical accident or common language or by the ironclads of an empire oppressing them, but Jesus and his love. Genuine love for one another was cause for Paul to encourage them, to celebrate them and say, keep going, and to thank God for them. And the third problem that they were facing was Rome as as their hope, the Roman Empire as their hope. Because of the peace, stability, comfort, security that the Roman Empire brought, there was a temptation to place all their hope in that empire. And Paul celebrates that they have placed their hope in something different. It's Jesus. Laid up for them in heaven. They're not placing their hope in good laws, They're not placing their hope in the right candidates that finally got elected. They're placing their hope in Jesus. Not the safety and security and comfort and well-being that comes from being in the greatest empire the world has ever known, but Jesus. Hope shows up last here, shaking up Paul's familiar order. Because in this moment, Paul saw faith and love springing up from this hope. That there was something about the hope that was laid up for them in heaven that they had placed their trust in that cultivated love and faith. And this helps us understand this culture and this church just a little bit more. That this, placing their hope in Jesus and nothing else, was the thing that started to shape their life. It cultivated faithfulness. It cultivated love for one another because they adhered to a different worldview and a different system of values. They adhered to a different king and a different kingdom, and it brought about different things in their life. 
He thanks God for their faith in Christ, their love for one another, and the basis for that love and faith is their hope. In this pagan culture, the Colossians had been without God and without hope in this world. Then the gospel came from Epaphras and others, and the wonderful, surprising joy of salvation and hope of heaven and true life with the true God came. And this joy naturally enlarged their love and their faith. Hope for the church in Colossae was not a feeling. It was a way of life. It utterly changed everything about them. It was not a warm, fuzzy feeling that things are going to be okay. But it was an entire lifestyle shift to adhere to a different set of values. We're going to find our value and our satisfaction elsewhere. We're not going to find it in good government. We're not going to find it in a powerful empire. We're going to find it in Jesus and Jesus alone. We're going to find it in that king and his kingdom that will one day make everything right. A hope in Jesus. A hope in in heaven, which is sometimes biblical shorthand for like when God will come and make everything the way it's supposed to be or the Jewish idea of shalom. A hope in heaven, this hope of glory, that this is not it, that one day Jesus will return and make everything right. And because you and I are following Jesus, we can participate in that new work. That kind of hope grounds them in a different type of world altogether. How important this hope of glory is, not only for the church at Colossae, but for you and I. I really do believe one of the the biggest issues, one of the biggest problems, and maybe even temptations that we face as Christians living today is that this world is everything. That you live 80 or 90 years, if you're lucky, and you have 80 or 90 years to make the most of your life. And then that's it. I mean, theoretically, we think there's a heaven, but we live as if this world is all there is. And if we really placed our hope in Jesus, laid up for us in heaven, and believed that we not only have 80 or 90 years here on earth, but this right now is part of the eternity we spend with God and new creation that totally changes how we live. You make decisions totally differently. You spend money totally differently. You treat your kids totally differently if we're preparing them for eternity with God. We're not running out the clock here. This, this practicing the way of Jesus, this living in mind that there is a kingdom coming that is far better and we are a part of it. And we, how we live right now, help prepares us for that kingdom utterly shapes everything about us. Everything. We place our hope in so many different things. Our family, our government, our job, our bank account, but each one of those things will disappoint you sometime. Or a lot of the times. Or daily. And there is an invitation to place your hope into someone who will never disappoint. Who will never let you down who through the ups and downs of life is with you always, who daily is is making you more into his image, who daily allows us to see the world more and more like he does. Each one of those things we place our hope in causes us to look elsewhere for value and satisfaction and hope and life. And Paul tells the church at Colossae, to continue hoping 
in Christ for everything. This hope that's laid up for you in heaven. And he says this a few different times to a few different people in the New Testament. And he actually writes something very similar to Titus, another church planter. He writes a letter to in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and unworldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We hope for that moment when he returns and we are found in him. John says the same thing in one of his letters. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have to cultivate this kind of hope in our life, because we know it shapes our faith and it shapes our love for one another. What you hope in has a direct correlation to how you live your life. So if we work backwards and we look at how we're living our life right now, where is your hope? Is that a scary thought? Is that like a bit revealing? Do you just dig up some of the stuff? It's like, oh shoot, the decisions I made last week really reveals that all my hope is like in having money in my bank account. Or all my hope is like raising these kiddos and hope I don't screw them up too much and they don't hate me later on in life. Like, where, where is your hope? Has a direct correlation to how you live. We ought to cultivate this hope in Christ. Like we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, this is not something that will happen to you. This is something we intentionally cultivate in our lives. To hope in the Lord not the things of this world, which will always disappoint. Which reminds me of a great exhortation, a great encouragement from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Might I propose that your and my hope in our bank account and our kids and our job is far too weak? Instead, hope in God. Hope in Jesus laid up for you in heaven changes everything. Even as disciples of Jesus, we still battle the temptation to go after the philosophies and the values of this world, to put our hope in the world And one of the biggest issues facing us today is where we put our hope. Because from this letter to the Colossians, we know our faith and our love for another will spring up from that. The Colossians were this faithful group of people engaging in the church planting life and Paul still had to write to them to convince them of the reality of Jesus and that it is so much better than everything else in this world. Eugene Peterson, in his Uh, paraphrase translation, captures the idea like this. The lines of purpose in your life never grow slack. Tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven, kept taut by hope. That is such an epic picture for what hope 
looks like. Our lines are tied to heaven and they are kept taut by hope. Satan is cunning and he will continually look for ways to distract the people of God from right beliefs and right actions. And our job is to use God's word to course correct along the way, to keep tight that line of hope in heaven and to not waver, to see Jesus as supreme and over everything. And that is the call in the book of Colossians. And even in the second part of this prayer, we get a little bit of a glimpse of that hope being worked out, a little bit of that fruit of the gospel, the fruit of that kind of faith and love and hope worked out. In verse 5, of this you have heard before, this is the hope. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. Imagine Paul, like, or imagine the Colossian church hearing this letter for the first time and the first part of that prayer is just eyes on themselves. Paul's encouraging them, thanking God, and immediately in verse 6, they sort of like lift their eyes and seeing the grand gospel adventure that God is weaving and how they are a part of it. It's bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has made known to us your love in the spirit. Picture what's going on here. Epaphras goes to Ephesus. Here's Paul has this conversion, is transformed by the gospel of Jesus, goes back to his hometown, starts this church that grows and is thriving, and Paul is writing back to them that hope has come, and they have placed their hope in the right place. It's been laid up for you in heaven. Of this message of hope you have heard before, the word of truth in the gospel. And it came through Epaphras, who learned it from Paul, who saw Jesus in a vision and was impacted by all sorts of early Christian leaders. And what Paul is getting at here is the gospel keeps on going. It doesn't just go to you, it goes through you. In the beginning and the end of a lot of Paul's letter, we have a lot of insight into how the gospel moves throughout the world. And it is through, typically, ordinary people who say yes to God and are radically changed by him, who alter their entire lives around him. This one guy who essentially went to a first century Billy Graham crusade, heard the word of the gospel, was changed by him, came back to his little podunk hometown, shares that gospel, and starts this church that we are now reading about 2,000 years later. The gospel goes on. The fruit of the gospel is at work. It has come to you through someone else. You are in this room because someone was faithful to share the gospel with you, whether a friend or a parent or a family member, a coworker. Someone has shared the message of the gospel with you. And it is ours to steward, not to hoard. It has gone to you and it is meant to go through you because the gospel keeps on going. It keeps working wherever it goes. Wherever it goes, people are believing and being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this fruit-bearing gospel has produced ministers like Epaphras and churches like the Holy Spirit-loving church at Colossae. The message is as true for you today as when you first heard it. It doesn't diminish or weaken over time. It's the same all over the world. And it is bearing fruit wherever it goes. 
It is getting larger and stronger just as it has in you. Christ's good news was for everybody and is for everybody and is daily reaching new people. Imagine what the world was like back then, 2,000 some odd years ago. Think of the combination of tribal faith, government-sponsored religion, dark underground spirituality, blood sacrifices, witchcraft spells, and into the darkness of Colossae, a light of Christ came. Hope in something that wouldn't disappoint. Hope in something that wouldn't fail. Paul, through the person and work of Jesus, offers them a light and life and hope. He offers them a lifeboat out of this kind of dark living. He encourages the Colossian church to see Jesus as the center of all reality, to place their hope in him and to remain devoted to Jesus so they don't give in to the pressures of other religions, other traditions, other cultures. He encouraged them in their faithfulness and their love for one another and that they are finding their hope in the only true source, which is Jesus. For a church struggling with such intense cultural pressure, religious pressure, and influences from one of the greatest empires of this world, Paul, first and foremost, encourages them in their identity and pursuit of Jesus and celebrates them in your prayers. And that's what I want to do for you guys today. I think there are a lot of correlating lines between us and the church and Colossae. And first and foremost, I want to encourage you to keep going. To encourage you that the Lord sees your faithfulness to Christ Jesus. He sees your love for one another. And he sees that you've placed your hope in something different. Yes, it's a call to reject placing our faith, hope, and love in other people and other things. But it is first and foremost in this letter an encouragement Say, you have have lived this life pursuing Jesus. Keep going. Keep structuring and arranging your life around Jesus as the center. Keep going. Keep practicing the way of Jesus day by day, letting him inform and affect every part of your life. Keep going. Keep loving sacrificially for one another. Keep faithfully living with Jesus as your, your North Star, your Pole Star. This celebration Paul has in his prayers to God at the very beginning of this letter is a bit of our celebration too. Because just like the church in Colossae, we too are God's holy and faithful ones, saints. We are the brothers and sisters with a common father in God. We are in Christ and are part of the joyous mystery of his body. The grace of God has been freely poured out on us. Grace upon grace, upon grace. We have peace, shalom, and the well-being that results from divine grace and the presence of God with us. And God has given us faith in Christ, love for each other, and a hope laid up in heaven in the person and work of Jesus, who is the object of our faith, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all dominions, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the unifier and reconciler of all things, the Savior through his sufferings on the cross, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, the triumphant victor over sin and Satan, the exalted Lord of life and glory, and the true pattern for the life of Christians, Jesus Christ. 
In him, we place our hope. And my encouragement to you is to keep going. Keep going. Amidst cultural pressure, religious tradition, an empire the biggest the world has ever known, keep going. Put your hope in Jesus. Keep your faith in Jesus central. Love one another well. As members of this new creation, of this new humanity, this new kingdom, no part of our human existence remains untouched by Jesus and his liberating rule. And that's my prayer for you today, that day by day, every part of your life is touched and changed and liberated by Jesus so that we can freely place our faith in him and our hope in him. So go ahead and stand. I want to pray a blessing over you this morning as the team comes up and leads us in a bit of response. Father, we freely recognize there are forces at play actively trying to distract us and rob our worship of you. The... uh, the Old Testament picture of worship was one of, of bringing sacrifices to the altar, sort of with open hands. God, as we regularly bring our worship to you as a sacrifice and as a gift, we recognize there are many people and things in this world trying to take from that sacrifice that we bring to you. There are gods in this culture trying to convince us it is good to worship them and you. There are temptations in our culture to add you in to whatever else we want to be doing. And we, as a church, say we're not having it. You are at the center. We bring our worship to you and you alone. We place our faith in you and you alone. Father, as we take time to even with our, with our voices verbalize that declaration, would you be at work in our hearts causing us to more and more reject the cultural temptations, the gods of this world, everything that tries to rob our affection and worship of you. Would you help us to see you evermore as the king of everything? and that you are worthy and worth our praise and our worship this morning. Amen.